Let's, uh, with that, let's go ahead and get started today. Um, this ought to be fun. Um, this is one of those lessons where up till this morning I was still trying to understand what I was looking at. And uh, so I'm going to apologize ahead of time if it seems just a little bit, uh, not jumbled, but it's still kind of coming together. Uh, and it might be that some of this we can kind of discover together as we walk through this. Um, but I want to start with uh, having us understand um, a couple of things. One, when we, uh, one of the things that happens when I, when I get a chance to take groups and we're traveling around, and so you get to go into Byzantine churches or old, old uh, churches from the from the Middle Ages and things like that. You see things and you go, "Wow, where did that where did that come from?" and and uh, how did we get to that point? Um, and how we got there, so, so the, the Christian churches of the Middle Ages um, are, are an interesting blend of a number of factors. There are things like, uh, there was the Greek and Roman mythology. Um, I remember talking to a, a, a tour guide on uh, Santorini, and she takes us down to a, her own little kind of village Greek Orthodox church. And she talked about how they had these traditions in, in Greece. And then when the church came in, they said they were going to have to change the traditions. And they said, yes, but we're, we kept doing it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're just going to keep mixing in uh, our mythology. Um, for instance, it's no, it's no surprise to anyone, I guess, that anywhere you go in in. Uh, Greece or the ancient Roman world, they always had female deities that they worshipped, whether it was Artemis or, or Venus or whoever, and they, they loved their female deities. And so one of the places that mixes is that when, when uh, Catholicism is coming in, it makes it easy to step from there to uh, kind of a, a deification of Mary, if you will. It kind of moves on from there. Anyway, Okay, so, so in the mix of that is always also Jewish traditions, okay? Uh, they're celebrating Mass, and they're, they're swinging incense. Why are they swinging incense? What does that harken back to? It's the prayers ascending to heaven, which is ascending back to Temple of Solomon, and all the way back to the, the tabernacle. Okay, so they're a mix of that. And then there's individual interpretations. What did the early fathers think? What did the writers think? Okay, uh, and then mixed with that is also papal decisions. If you ask, if you ask the Catholic Church about uh, uh, what is revelation, uh, they're, they're fairly clear that there's a revelation of the Holy Spirit, there's a revelation of the Scripture, there's also a, a revelation of papal bulls, which is really uh, Pope decisions that are part, and then there, and this tradition as well, those are all part of Scripture that we worship and study and follow. Okay? Um, so you're getting all of these mixes of things that then come together in the Christian churches of the Middle Ages, and then you're going to get all of that. And then the reformers, 
like Luther and Calvin then go, okay, now we're going to add our spin to the whole thing. <laughs> we'll take out the stuff we don't like. We're going to add the stuff. And then now we're going to look through this lens with all of this twist behind us. Okay? So do you get a feeling why it is there had to be a restoration? And why it is that the plain and precious truths, how many places along the way did they drop out? And how many places were they changed or added to the things that, that they do? Okay? Not that we do that in our church at all, but we have started to get, uh, uh, you get some of these little individual interpretations and, and things like that. Okay? Now, so why are we to, as, as we get ready to study the Jerusalem Conference in uh, 49 or 50 A.D., how come we're looking at this? Well, here's, here's the reason why. There's a second one that I need you to take a look at. If you, can understand, if you get this concept. And that is when we take a look at the first books of the Old Testament. The Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Deuteronomy, and even into 1 Kings and 2 Kings and Chronicles, and you get these first books, not the prophetic books like Isaiah and Jeremiah, but the books that tell the history of Israel. Okay? Um, who wrote those? How, how did we get that, the first part of the, book of, uh, the, the books of the Old Testament? I was compiled, yes. Was it Moses? Well, they are attributed to Moses. Sure. Okay. When were they actually written down? In Babylon. That's right. Okay. Now, let that sink in for a second. Let me say this, let me say this carefully. The books of the Old Testament were written after Lehi left Jerusalem. Okay, now, they take the brass plates. There are some written records. There are some oral records. There's a history of all of those things, but those Old Testament uh, was done while they were in exile in Babylon during the 70 years that they are in Babylon and before they come back is when Finally, Genesis is actually being written down in the form that we have it today. And Exodus is the same way. Now, that, why is that important? Well, that's kind of important because uh, Jerusalem had just been destroyed. And the temple had been flattened out. And all of the princes and everybody had been hauled off to Babylon. And there was a sense among the scribes in, in Babylon that go, oh my gosh, we're losing, we're losing Israel. We're losing, we've lost our city. We've lost our pride. We've lost who we are. And, and we better write this stuff down so that we don't lose the traditions that, that we have and take the things, the oral traditions and little scraps of records that we have and compile them and finally put them together so that we don't lose our Jewish, well, I would say Jewishness. They get captured as Israel. They come back as Judish. Judish? Jews. Yes. Uh, Judish is good, I think. Isn't it? Okay, they come back Jewish. Yeah. So how does the time frame work on the Dead Sea Scrolls then? Ah. The Dead Sea Scrolls are, are interesting. They're at Qumran. 
Um, some of those records, like for instance, the, uh, Qumran was a um, was a publishing house. If you think about it, um, they were the Essenes in the area uh, would come into the publishing house there at Qumran, and they would copy ancient records, and the, and so they had like like uh, multiple copies of Isaiah and multiple copies, and then in addition they wrote their own scrolls, and so for the Essenes, uh, it's really kind of after they come back from exile, uh, the community scroll and, and all of those kind of things are after, but it gives you an idea what they were thinking um, among that group. But some of them, they're copying ancient records, like Isaiah. Okay? similar to one of our current prophets, writing things down as his story unfolds, things being written as his presidency right unfolds, but then his book is written that's, that's really a good way to put it there are the preachings and then there's like the biography written down at the time they were happening sure Exodus, Exodus, those things were written down but then compiled yeah Babylon, and, and a side note remember on this uh, <laughs> Jesus quotes from the Dead Sea Scrolls you know you've heard it said of old that you should hate your enemies <clears throat> Well, that's right out of the community scroll. So, so it was known. It was had. Okay, yeah. The brass plates were separate from that. Yes, the brass plates. Absolutely. So, so here's what we don't... I mean, the brass plates is really interesting. Was that the only copy available of Zenus and Zenoch uh, and who knows? And they were, on, they were on brass plates, which is incredibly unusual because... In Babylon, they're not hauling hauling off all kinds of brass plates. What they're hauling off is scrolls and oral traditions and having to compile them because they had not yet been compiled to that point. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's isn't that why we ask questions though? Are they the ones you're vague on? So on top of that, as the as the, uh, this is the books are being written about a half about a hundred years well about a hundred years after Josiah's reforms start and and without most of us were here for that but for those of you who weren't because we took a lot longer on that the really really short version is the fact that when Josiah goes into the temple and they realize that they haven't really been practicing the law of Moses very good and all that and they find some records about what was in the law and they have a big Josiah you know come to Jehovah meeting <laughs> you know and, and we're going to now but the reforms are going to be like uh, no more visions, no more prophets. It's, it's, it's just about what's in the scriptures and nothing else. It would sound like a great Baptist meeting uh, about saying uh, visions are all out, are, are over, lead us away from Torah and, and all of that. And that's why, and, and if somebody's going to show up and they're going to have a vision, they should be killed. 
That's why, again, the, long, the short story is Laman and Lemuel were very devout believers of the Deuteronomist under Josiah. And when Lehi is going off having visions and he's creating a temple in the wilderness, then he should be killed. So they, they believed, Laman and Lemuel, at least at the beginning, I think, are trying to protect Torah. They're trying to protect the law. And it, 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 now, later on, I think they kind of fall off a little bit. But at least at first, Lehi's doing all the wrong things and false prophets should be killed. So, anyway. But those Josiah reforms helped form the writing of the Old Testament. Okay? And then, you can't really see that, but those are rabbi interpretations. So now you get rabbinical what does this mean? Well, let me tell you. And they start putting together the Mishnah, which is all of the, the traditions, the oral traditions that we're going to then buy into. And that the Pharisees were very much into the Mishnah and all that. Okay? So, why is all that important? Okay? But first of all, uh, any questions on that? Oh, I have one. If, it, if the books, the first books were compiled in Babylon. Right. Was most of it oral histories? So that's really interesting. It gives you some idea why it is. So, so when when Joseph Smith is doing the Joseph Smith translation, and he goes through the New Testament, how many changes did he make in the New Testament? Very, very few. Partly because he circumstances going on with him at the time. But partly, guys, he was using Adam Clark's commentary. 90% of the changes that Joseph Smith made in the New Testament, Joseph Smith's translation, were things coming out of the Adam Clark commentary, and they're changing, you know, thee to thou, or this to that. I mean, they're just really minor cosmetic things. There's not a lot of great changes in the New Testament. What happens when Joseph Smith is rolling through the Old Testament? Massive changes. The Pearl of Great Pride, Moses, the book, Moses, and, and major changes in Genesis, and as we're about to find out here in just a second. That's when they brought in the person to teach him Hebrew. Too, yeah, well, actually, when, when he says well, that's when they brought him in, when they had someone come in, uh, Josiah Stasis, to come in and teach them Hebrew, that's actually, he's, act, he's actually making all of these changes within six months of the organization of the church. By late summer, 1830, he's already working his way through Moses. And he's already made massive changes in the Old Testament. Why? Because the Old Testament has a lot of problems. Numbers aren't what you think they are. You know? The Old Testament says that, that uh, uh, Joshua is going to roll through the city and kill all the, the Canaanites living in this city and they're all men, women, and children and everybody dies and they clean them all out. And then a year later they're being attacked by that same city with the whole army. Okay? Well, that's because what we have in Babylon, they're writing it to, to make uh, David not look just a little great, but a lot great. They're trying to make the army of the Israelites not look a little strong, make them a lot strong. So it isn't like they had a war and killed a hundred people. They killed thousands of people. <laughs> you know, they, they, ah, we got to prove that David, King David and Israel was mighty and powerful because we're sitting here outside Babylon <laughs> next to a river in exile. 
So they, they got a little exaggerated. So it's hard to tell sometimes in the Old Testament how much is really uh, exactly what you think it is. And wow, are we about to see that come to fruition in just a second. Okay, so does that make sense so far? All right. I know half the time you guys are wondering like, where is he going with this? I, I thought we were studying the Apostle Paul <laughs> and we're wandering through Qumran. Okay. Eventually it all, uh, if, I, I'm so, I think I'm sometimes like a gymnast, you, you know, and you'll watch them like they're running down the ramp and they hit the thing and they spin off through the air and you'll wow, and they stick the landing. <laughs> you go, Oh, it all makes sense. That, that, that whole, okay. The vault. I'm about to stick the landing. <laughs> okay. All right. Okay, so thus it begins. So, last, last, uh, last week we were talking about the fact that uh, Paul is, uh, he goes on his first mission. They're going to go up into Asia Minor. Uh, they're having some great experiences in uh, uh, Antioch up there. Uh, they start planting little house churches. Things start to go well. They're feeling good about themselves. People are accepting the gospel. Uh, they come back to Antioch. They have their uh, uh, report your mission talk in sacrament meeting. Here's what we did. Barnabas and I, it was kind of cool. They thought he was a god. They thought I was a god. But, you know, I was Hermes. He was just Zeus. You know, I, whatever. We're, we're having a pretty good time with, we're reporting. And then what happens? In Acts 15, when Paul and Barnabas were at Antioch of Syria, there's two Antiochs. Okay. Antioch of Syria, some men from Judea the Jerusalem branch, men from Judea arrived and began to teach the believers, unless you are circumcised as required by the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. Wow. So, let me ask, squeamishly, what was the, what was the purpose of circumcision? Humility. <laughs> Humility. <laughs> Maybe. God commands Abraham, Genesis 17, to do what? What was the purpose? It was to be a reminder of covenant, but it wasn't covenant. A reminder of what? Ah. So what? And the Abrahamic covenant was. Land, posterity, okay. So, it certainly did separate Gentile, especially by the time you get down to Paul. That is really kind of the way you. That's what you say. There are the circumcised and the, you know, and and the normal people. <laughs> okay. How how do we know? Well, I don't know. When go to the Olympics. The, all those things are done in the nude. You know, you go, ah, we can, we can figure out which ones are the Jews. It's not ours. Okay? All right. So, um, was, was, uh, where'd circumcision come from? 
see the study that I was doing this week? It was. <laughs> okay. Did they just kind of make it up on the spot? Right. Right. But was this the first time that circumcision shows up in, in history? No. Where'd they get circumcision from? Who else was circumcising? The Egyptians were circumcising. Uh, we have great, uh, great pictographs of the, the act occurring. Lovely. Uh, lovely, yeah. Okay. Uh, the, uh, a number of cultures around them were doing circumcisions. We don't know always why they were doing it, but they were certainly doing it. it this was not the first time anybody was circumcising. Africa. Africa was circumcising. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and, there, and, and most of the, the, the research, as you look at it, says, yeah, they were doing it. We don't know exactly know why. Maybe it was just for cleanliness. Yeah. Cleanliness is one of the, yeah. the one of the aspects Clean, of that. Physically, physically staying clean and not. Yeah. Right. And, and in fact, as early as like forty or fifty years ago, there was a battle even in this country about whether you should or shouldn't circumcise. Is you know, does it make things better or worse? Okay. So it's it's a it's a topic that's been around for a long time, but we also need to recognize that that when it comes to Abraham, at least as it's recorded in Genesis 17, that there is a sign, there is a token being created here that will mean something. But it's fascinating to me that God is going to say, let me take something that's being done, something out here with other people, I'm going to pull it in with Abraham and assign it a meaning that hasn't existed till this moment. I'm going to take a symbol that you guys are aware of and I'm going to give it, give it meaning and a, and a sign that now it means something. Okay? Does that make sense? Okay? Yeah, hang on to that idea. Right. By the way, uh, can you think of any other place where somebody has taken symbols being used somewhere else and appropriated them, bringing them into another setting and assigning a whole other meaning to it where it looks like we're either stealing or plagiarizing or something. All you're doing is appropriating another symbol and making it mean something else under divine direction. Temple. The temple. Absolutely. Well, you know, Joseph Smith just went, you know, they made him a mason and then he just to steal the whole Masonic thing and he's going to hold the whole thing over there and pop it in the temple and that's where the whole temple thing came from. Oh, Joseph is doing what the Lord was doing in here. He's saying there, there's some symbols here that mean something to these guys. This is a very quick way to demonstrate accepting a certain covenant and doing it very, in a very quick manner 
that we're going to be able to use these symbols for our purpose, but change exactly what the symbol means. It's not a matter of stealing. It's simply a matter of saying, that would work. We can use this. But the problem is, is that so often we get caught up in the symbol that we miss what it's being symbolized for. Okay? And we get, where did that come from? And why is that? And what, how come we're doing that? Well, no. What is it saying? What is this symbol suggesting? And that, that we've got to be able to do. Yeah. The Lord says that all things testify of him. Sure. Even if that symbol has been used somewhere else for somebody else's purpose. And wouldn't you expect the adversary to try to take all of the symbols that lead us to the truth and pervert them? Sure. Give them means that are not intended. Well, yes. And, and I'm glad to, to, to take it now. Look at what's it. Let's go back and read this now. Okay? And the, the, these people coming from Judea arrive and they begin to teach the believers unless you are circumcised as required by the law of Moses you cannot be saved what are they now what are they now doing in a kind of a Christian setting to circumcision making a requirement for what salvation it was a covenant but now they're saying, in the light of what we're doing, we're now going to tie this somehow to salvation. But at this point, Christianity wasn't separate from Judaism. It was considered a branch of Judaism. Yes. In other words, so now you're getting that, exactly. As they're trying, what you're watching is the church going through fits and starts, trying to understand what we believe. And, and, and we're bringing to it Greek traditions and now you're also getting Jewish traditions as they're trying to somehow meld it together and it would make sense that in this setting there would be some saying we think that, that we're, we're still Jesus was Jewish and Jesus was circumcised and Je Jesus lived the law of Torah and he did all of these things and now we're going to come along and say, but now he completed the law of Moses, but we don't want to abandon the law of Moses. We want to bring it with us. So what does that mean for Greek converts? What are they, how do we manage this? And you're going to have different factions put, trying to put this whole thing together. Uh, and it's interesting to watch these strains uh, as, as they're battling this out. Okay, so... So the purpose of, of circumcision then, as they understood it, as they understood it, was, was tying back into the Abrahamic covenant. Okay? Well, okay. Let's, let, let's take a back step. This is where Joseph Smith comes in and the plain and precious truths are restored. Joseph Smith translation of Genesis 17. Okay? Comes to pass. Abraham fell on his face. He calls on the Lord. God talked to him. My people have gone astray from my precepts and have not kept mine ordinances, which I gave unto their fathers. They have not observed mine anointing. The burial or baptism I have commanded them. Whoops. 
but have turned from the commandment and taken unto themselves what? The washing of children, baptizing, baptizing kids. Okay? And the blood of sprinkling. Really? And have said that the blood of righteous Abel was shed for their sins. Somebody's going to come and their blood will be shed and then you'll be clean. And have not known wherein they are accountable before me. But as for thee, Abraham, behold, I will make a covenant with thee and thou shalt be a father of many nations. Now, that should forever answer the question, why Abraham? Why Abraham? Because nobody else was doing it. Everybody else was rejecting what he was trying to do and Abraham is the one that steps up and says, I will do it. I want, and then we go to the book of Abraham and it says, I, I wanted the priesthood and the power of my fathers. Meaning Adam and Noah and stuff. Because his immediate fathers... In fact, his dad was running the idol shop, remember? Okay. Um, but as for thee, I will make my covenant with thee, and thou shalt be a father of many nations. Wow, great. Now, if Abraham, according to the Joseph Smith translation, is going to be the, now the father of nations, there ought to be a covenant, right? Hold on to your hat. I will establish a covenant of circumcision with thee and listen closely now and it shall be my covenant between me and thee and thy seed after thee in their generations that you're about to find out what the law of circumcision was about and it's not what you thought that thou mayest know forever that what children are not accountable before me until they are eight years old. That's what circumcision was. It was a visible symbol that children are kind of born under a covenant. You say, well, wait a minute, that's just the boys. What about the girls? That leaves like, like half the population. Apparent, I, don't, I don't have an answer for that. Other than the fact that this was suggesting, maybe by the covenant of circumcision on the boys, that all kids were not were clean. They weren't born under sin. Okay? Wow. Circumcision is about not baptizing kids. And and recognizing that kids that's why you're circumcised like eight days old, because you're gonna say, there needs to be a way to say these Kids are clean, and 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 I have established a covenant with Abraham, and they're clean. Is what he's saying. The men were doing the baptism. Right? Yeah. So maybe that's. Maybe the men were the one. You know, it could be right. I just think there's a chance on here. It's just such a male-dominated society. If we do it to the boys, we need it. We mean everybody. Everyone had a father. And they're teaching their children. So as a father under covenant, you'd be teaching your children. You wouldn't baptize. No, right, 
Right. Isn't it interesting how often child baptism or child born under original sin keeps creeping in and it keeps creeping in. And so even when we get to the, to the, the Book of Mormon, there's a couple of times that even the Savior has to say, children are not accountable. You know, stop baptizing. You know, and Moroni, or, or, or Mormon on his mission is going to have to write back to Moroni and says, don't baptize kids. Yeah, it's easier to justify your own shortcomings if you can say, well, I was born this way. Or yeah, yeah. But we just need to know that kids are born innocent mm -hmm. and, and, they're, and they're not to blame. And, and the law of circumcision was saying this is a visual reminder that says they're born clean and they're under the covenant. Period. Okay. Now, look at, look at how far downhill that went <laughs> by the time it got to Pharisaic Christian Jews at the time of Paul. Now circumcision meant what? Salvation. It had drifted all the way. That's why I'm saying you get this mix. And this is why Joseph Smith had to bring back the plain and precious truths that were somehow lost in all the iterations along the way. Okay? But now watch all the trouble that is caused because people did not understand what circumcision was, what it meant. Because it now had become salvation, now all the hoo-ha starts. And, and all the problems began. Uh, finally, Joseph Smith's translation, Thou shalt observe to keep all my covenants, wherein I covenant with thy fathers. Thou shalt keep the covenants which I have given thee with mine own mouth. I will be a God unto thee, and thy seed after me. So, there's the covenant with Abraham, with circumcision, pointing to the fact that children are clean. Yeah. Because Abraham is also the Muslim's father. Yeah, Abraham is also the... Male. You're right, right. So did that... Ishmael was, was circumcised as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like everybody coming out of Abraham, it says everybody in your family, even your slaves, everybody's going to be, everybody's going to be circumcised because children are clean and, and away we go. Now, by the time they're writing it in the Old Testament, in Babylon, they're kind of leaving out the baptism for kids part and it's just a covenant. That, that part got left out. Um, so, anyway. Question. Yeah. So is that a part of the restored gospel? That children are clean? Circumcision. Oh, no, it really isn't. Uh, in fact, if you look at the, if you look in the uh, church handbook, it's, it's not like you have to be circumcised. It's really not, because we now understand uh, the, the process, but yeah, it hadn't, at this point, they were still sorting that out. They, they didn't have that. Okay? All right. So, Acts 15. I'm trying to think how I did this. Let's go back up. All right. Acts 15. Let me try this for just a second here. I wonder if I can put this up here. Apostles. Oh, that's lovely, that is. No, I'm not going to do that. Okay. 
Acts 15. I was hoping I could put it up on the screen where it would be easier. All right. Uh, let's see. Verse 2. After Paul and Barnabas had a lively debate with these guys coming from Jerusalem, they, they appointed Paul and Barnabas and some other elders among them to meet with the apostles and elders in Jerusalem about this disagreement. It's time for a big general conference, and we're going to have a confab and figure out what do we do with circumcision and what do we do with Gentiles in general. Okay? So they come, they gather, they arrive in Jerusalem, they're received by the church. Uh, now, this ought to give you a key. Verse 5. But some who were of the sect of the Pharisees who believed stood and said. Okay, now put that in context. Some of those in the, in the Jerusalem church still identified themselves as Pharisees with all of the laws and ordinances and requirements and everything that goes with being a Pharisee. But they were also believers. So this is, this is a huge push drive behind this kind of this Pharisaic push to make sure that the law of Moses is strictly filled out as well as all of the Pharisaic traditions and the Mishnah about how far you can walk on a Sabbath day and who you eat with and all that stuff and we'll be Christian on top of that. Wow. It is, yeah, it's got, we're going to take the Jesus part and add that. It would be like we, it would be just like we baptized a group of Hasidic Jews and brought them into the ward and they believed that you were, really weren't a true Mormon unless you were celebrating Passover strictly, you know, and go, doing all the ritual washings. That makes you a really perfect Mormon because you never give up on your Hasidic, you know, your Jewish traditions. Okay, it's kind of what they were doing. Uh, in Baytown, Texas, when the church first came there, almost all of the converts there were Baptists. And, uh, and as you can imagine, a lot of the style of worship, the music, oh, yes. things was very, very Baptist. And there's nothing wrong with it or anything. It just it's just a different tradition. Right. Yeah, remember when, uh, when, when, the, when uh, in the... Uh, late 40s and 50s and uh, the church was getting letters from all of these uh, Mormons in Africa. And there is a point at which President McKay is turning to his counselors and going one of these letters we got is on is on the uh, is on, is on a stationery that says the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints gone a branch. Do we have any warning? No, we don't have anything in Ghana. Really? Well, here's it's on the stationery. Really? Okay. So they sent the uh, the secretary, the first presidency, down to meet with these guys um, to say what the heck is going on down here, and, and are you really just maybe wanting welfare or something? You know, what's what's really the deal? Okay. Uh, and they get down there and they find out. Uh, Boy, I'm blocking his name. Somebody you know. There, there, there was a, there was a, an African Paul. Who? 
Billy Johnson, thank you. Billy Johnson, the African Paul, okay? He'd already baptized by a, a stake. He had, he had like six wards. <laughs> and they're going, and so they said, and and they're, and it, and when the when the plane pulls up, and here's the here's the uh, secretary, the first presidency walks in. There are five bishops wanting to, them to all come to their ward. Wow! Wow! All right, so he picks one. You know, I'm going to go with with this one, and he goes there, and he walks in the building, and I and I've actually seen this. Uh, it, it, it's wonderful. They had a uh, about a seven or eight foot tall golden angel Moroni at the front of the chapel, <laughs> and, it's, uh, it, and the podium was off to the side. So we don't have a we don't have a crucifix, but we do have an angel Moroni. Okay, um, and he meets with them and, and tries to explain for hours what's going on, and then finally he said. Uh, this was the thing that impressed him the most. He says, now, you guys got any questions? And one of them said, yes, yes. Where did Alma get his priesthood in the wilderness? <laughs> did he get it from the angel? Did he get it from Abinadi? Exactly where did he get it? And at that point he realized, these guys know their Book of Mormon backwards and forwards. They are asking questions we don't have answers to. Wow. Okay? So it's one of the reasons why, and, and you know, you get this mix of the local flavor and everything. I think if you were to go, anybody been to an African church, at the, at the, at the Church of Jesus Christ? Because I think that I think that they're clapping, and I think that they're I think they're allowing them to have local flavor to, to what they're doing during hymns and stuff. And okay, lots of amens all over the place. Yeah. No, but back in those days, yeah, they, they had mixed because they had no contact with the church. And so they were just, they were winging it with the Book of Mormon. So, anyway, so you get that mix, yeah. I was there about 10 years ago off the South Yeah. And we found the um, oration style and the speaking style was more of what you would say is traditional <clears throat> African. Right. Classrooms, they were reading out of the handbooks and the manuals, word for word. Yeah. So there wasn't a lot of, you know, we're going to throw our own stuff in there. It was, this is what we've been given, we're reading. So if you went to a Sunday school lesson, they would read the lesson straight out of the handbook. Yeah. I, I see, I, I have this hope. It's just my, this is just my own, okay, where, where's my, where's my Kevin speculation thing? <laughs> I have this hope with the new hymn book that there will be room for like like a ward in downtown Harlem to really rock and roll if they want to rock and roll during according to their I, I, we should be able to take on the local culture and flavor of what people can you imagine what a sacrament meeting if they let it go in New Orleans would really look like <laughs> wow that could be great yeah um, I lived in and I remember when the state president showed up and said, let's, let's look at the um, Doctrine and Covenants score. The field is black 
and ready to harvest. And when we got together for wow. um, conference, or when we got together for musical evenings, it was different. And we just reveled. I'll bet. I'll bet that would be awesome. Yeah, very cool. Very cool. Yeah, present. Went to a state conference in Kenya a few months ago. Yeah. And they followed the guidelines stricter than we do here. Yeah. Yeah. And I think in some cases they would do that and just say, we're going to do it the, the Mormon way. We'll do it. We're going to. Uh, and that's why I say, I wonder if we're going to see kind of a loosening of some of that to in, include people's local cultures and stuff like that. But Okay, so here, but here we are in Jerusalem. It's, it's 49, 50 A.D. We're trying to figure out how we do this. Suddenly the church has exploded in Asia, uh, and it's full of Gentiles. Uh, notice how they're going to handle this. So how do we resolve this? Well, first of all, we're going to get... Uh, Verse 6, the apostles and elders gathered to consider the issue. Uh, after considerable debate, Peter stood and said to them, Brothers, you know, some time ago God made a choice among you and determined that by my mouth the Gentiles might hear the gospel message and believe. Meaning I had the vision that, that was shown to me to, that they are clean. Um, God knows the heart, has testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit just as he gave it to us. And he makes no distinction between them. Now, and then here, here's where they go, and I think this is an accommodation as best as they know how to do this. Uh, and it might sound just a little bit weird in the way that we would look at this. Verse 10. Now, why are you trying God by placing a burden on the neck of the disciples, a burden that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear. In other words, they're talking about, do we include circumcision? And if we do include circumcision, it will be a burden. Now, they're not saying it's doctrinally wrong to believe that you have to be circumcised to be saved. They're just saying it's kind of an inconvenience. <laughs> it's kind of a burden. Okay. Why are we trying to put an extra burden that would make it harder? You see the problem here? How, how do we do this? And they said, well, let's just not put an extra burden on here. Okay, So he's going to do that. Now, then the whole gathering kept quiet and listened to Barnabas and Paul as they explained all the miracles that had been done. Now, Here's the next part, though. If we're going to do something this radical, like not have them, not have the circumcision required, we've got to have a voice in our midst that we know everybody will accept. Not everybody's going to accept Peter. And certainly, half the ward, half this gathering doesn't believe Paul isn't messing with them. Who do we have in our midst that they, that would be universally believed among everybody that's here and would get everybody's buy-in if this is the person that voices, where do we go from here? Where do you think they might go? In the, uh, right after the death of uh, Joseph Smith in Nauvoo, 
There was always a question about what did Joseph Smith believe or what did Joseph Smith teach? And it would be one thing if it was coming from Brigham Young, but Brigham Young was one of the factions. Who might be most listened to in Nauvoo in 1844? Family. If, if, if Joseph Smith Sr. had been alive, they'd have been listening to him. Now, William Smith was a little on the crazy side. Emma was still deeply depressed and in mourning. So they really didn't, and Hiram was gone. They didn't have a family member that they could have leaned on. Had they had an active family member, uh, Don Carlos had died. He, um, Lucy, all, who they really had was Mother Smith. And Mother Smith uh, deliberately stepped out of the spotlight uh, to kind of console her daughter-in-law. But had Lucy Mack stood up in Nauvoo when they're trying to decide, how much weight would that have carried? Yeah. Yes. I mean, family. Family means everything. So if we're going to resolve this dispute, Peter's here, Paul's here, who might we listen to most of all that might clear this up for us? James. Yes. Okay. So let, but James is an interesting story. So let's back up. Because the, the translation here, he's actually named Jacob. It's actually Jacob, uh, the, the Greek... The Greek translation into English made it James. He's actually Jacob. So when you're reading this translation, it'll say Jacob. It actually means James, the brother of Jesus. Keep in mind that Jesus, when, when Jesus was on earth, yet we know about, we know about uh, mom. So at some point, his, father, his uh, stepfather dies. How many siblings did Jesus have? How many brothers, first of all, did he have? Four. How many sisters? More than one. <laughs> Matthew and Mark uh, record that there was James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. At least four brothers, at least four siblings. And during the Savior's ministry, they all rejected the gospel. Let that one sink in a little bit. They all rejected the gospel. Yeah? Where does it say those are Jesus' brothers? Uh, Matthew has it, uh, and Mark. Mark says it first, Matthew says it, but reverses the order a little bit. Okay, so it's, it's twice in the New Testament. I, had, I did the same thing. I said, did, is it really there? And sure enough, I, I didn't know. They're there. These are the brothers. Okay? Now, they all rejected his ministry. Um, now, this is why in 1 Corinthians 15, this is one of those moments that if you really think about it, is amazing. Paul is going to say to the Corinthians that he appeared when, when Jesus was resurrected uh, he appeared to Cephas Peter 
then 500, then he's going to say, then he appeared to Jacob, James, and then the apostles. Can you picture that moment? Wow. He's going to, there's going to be the, the women, then he's going to talk to Cephas, he's going to reveal himself to the twelve, and then there's a moment when he's going to have this private interview with his next oldest sibling, James, who had rejected the gospel during his lifetime. And he's going to appear as a resurrected being. Wow. Wouldn't you love to have like a millennial video of that? I want to see the moment when he appears to James. Because I just think that would have been overwhelming. And it is enough that James then goes on to become uh, the bishop of the, of the uh, Jerusalem branch. Partly because he's had, he has this literal come to Jesus moment. <laughs> Literally. But then he's converted. But part of it too would be the strength of he is... This is family. Nobody's going to know what needs to happen better than family does. So James is going to carry this tremendous weight. Now, this isn't Peter, James, and John. Remember, he's killed by the sword by, by uh, Herod. Okay? This, is, this is James, who's outside the twelve during the whole ministry. This is after, afterwards. Okay? Um, now, by the way, side note, we do have one other account of Jesus after the resurrection showing himself to his relatives. Anybody know who that is? Was it his sister? Is his aunt and his uncle. Yes. His aunt Mary and uncle uh, Cleopas, or Clopas, as he's sometimes called, on the road to Emmaus. And even their eyes were holden. They couldn't, they couldn't see him. Uh, so really, when he's on the cross, we know that there is, he's seeing his mother, he's seeing his aunt, and he's seeing Mary Magdalene. Okay. All right. But, but, I, but get this sense. That, that James, this is, now, this is now 4950 A.D., so this is some 20 years after the death of the Savior. And at this point now, James has risen up in prominence. Verse 13, when they were silent, Jacob, Joseph, responded, My brothers, listen to me. Simon has described at first God sought to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. Then he quotes from the scriptures. Verse 19, therefore I determine, this is kind of the, this is like the head of the Jerusalem church. I determined that we should cause no additional difficulty for the Gentiles who turn to God. So we're not going to require circumcision, even though we have this Pharisaic branch 
that is really pushing us hard, and they won't give up on it, by the way. They're not going to, even though this is the brother of Jesus, they're not going to listen. Uh, but we should write to them telling them to abstain from foods defiled by idols, sexual impropriety, from which have been, uh, that would have been strangled, and from blood. In other words, there's going to be some dietary things. We don't think they should be hanging out in Zeus temples because their meat is better th th than what they've got at home. Because they would certainly do that. In, in, uh, in uh, Corinth, they would have the festivals uh, in, the, in the Greek temples. They would cook it on the altars, and then they would take it back to the shops and sell it. It, it was like a barbecue shop <laughs> of the really good meat, <laughs> the, the, the choice meat that had been barbecued in the temple. And so that on those festivals, it was really tempting as if you're a Christian to go run over to the shops there and get, and get some good meat. <laughs> you might have been really tired of grain by that point. And they said, no, we're going to make that, we're going to draw that line because it probably doesn't look good for all of our Christians standing in line at, at the Zeus barbecue shop. That probably doesn't look good. Maybe so, that's where the Romans leveled for him. Yeah, it might be. Yeah, they really did. Uh, okay. Um, so, therefore, we don't we don't want any additional difficulty for the Gentiles who turn to God. Okay. All right. So that's the so that's the decision. They write a letter, send it out. Paul and Barnabas are happy. Things are good, and off Paul and Barnabas go back to Antioch, and, and life is now lovely. Isn't it? Oh, heck no. Uh, because this is... There's some, there's some debate amongst scholarly circles if... if Acts 15, the Jerusalem conference, and Galatians 2 are really talking about the same things. They've, sometimes they've got a different order. But most of the scholars I read, including most of the LDS scholars, all time Acts 15 with what happens in Galatians 2. Okay, so it's impossible to kind of read the... If you're reading Acts 15, the next step should be to go over to, to Galatians 2. Now, before you do that... However, let, let, me just, let me just say a couple of things. Have you ever been really upset about something and you fired off an email or a text or actually wrote off a letter when you were angry and upset and then later you went, well, that was probably a little harsh. If I wish I could have that one back, uh, because that kind of came across maybe rougher than really what I intended. I still intended most of what I said. I probably could have said it better. Um, yeah. Captain Moroni and Pohorn. Captain Moroni would be a good example. Yeah. You know, how can you sit there in your thoughtless state? I'm going to come <laughs> knock you down. Okay. And Pahoran going, man, I love your heart. <laughs> you know, there's a man who kind of steps above that. I, I love that. But, you, but, but in the middle of that, you also get Captain Moroni's zeal, right? His love for his people. We're starving here. We're trying to defend your liberty. 
get off your duffs and give us some food. Okay? Okay? Um, that, that, that experience is probably roughly similar to the book of Galatians. That's probably a very, very good parallel. Okay? There's going to be an event that's going to happen in, in uh, Galatia, and we don't know whether it was in Presidian Antioch or Iconia, but, but it's in Antioch. No, it's in Antioch. And it comes after the conference, and Peter's going to show up, and it's not going to go well. And in anger and upset, Paul will write his very first letter. We have some of the, the teachings of Paul in Acts. Galatians is his first letter. And this is 50 AD. And he's upset, and he's angry, and, and he is pure Paul. <laughs> Which means he is snide, and he is attacking. And if Romans is Paul at his absolute best, Galatians is Paul at his absolute worst. Again, driven by zeal, driven by the love of his converts, but it is the, he is the bull in the china closet that is about to go berserkos. Okay, have I set up Galatians really well? Okay. All right, I want you to see Paul's <laughs> shining moments. By the way, I, I have all, I've often thought, um, side note, one of the books that I grew up with that was, uh, that would always, it was a little hard to read, was uh, President Kimball's The Miracle of Forgiveness. Okay? Um, I believe that if President Kimball, uh, who was kind of my prophet while I was in high school, I believe that if President Kimball were alive today, he would write that book much differently. As it is, it is what it is, and you can't buy it anymore. <laughs> it's been taken out of circulation because it just does not fit with where the church is, both in tone and in substance. So, Miracle of Forgiveness is not a book that you give to somebody when they are repenting, which is what we used to do and then have a hard time getting people back after they've been reading The Miracle of Forgiveness. And they're like, oh my gosh, I can't even get past chapter two before I, you know, I should, you know, kill me now. <laughs> um, and that's why I say, I think President Kimball would write it differently. If somebody were struggling with repentance, I, man, I would have them, I've, I've got about three or four other books I would suggest, but not Miracle of Forgiveness. And I loved it. Uh, and, and I took a big deep breath when I threw it away. I tried. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's right. <laughs> what? <laughs> Boy, had I forgotten that. Thank you for that reminder. <laughs> when Cindy and I got married, we decided that we would let the prophet know that young people were still getting married in the temple. So we took our little wedding announcement and we fired it off to President Kimball. What we got, and then a few weeks later, we got, that's right, we got a packet. Uh, we opened it up and it was a, it was a paper 
copy of the miracle of forgiveness with our announcement pasted inside and signed by President Kimball. Oh. You're right, we have that one. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not throwing away one signed by the prophet. But my other copy, yes, I had, I had forgotten about. Thank you, Cindy, for that reminder. <laughs> okay. All right. So, she stays out of the way in, cl in case fire strikes. Um, uh, let's see. Let me get to Galatians. Yes. And then to go a day, a week, a month, or even a year later, and then very pathetic to just delete it. It's sent. I, I like that. There, there are a lot of times that it, I will have clients write stuff, write letters that they will never send. There, there are some real cathartic kind of things. You're right. All right. Let's see. Write it and throw it away? Absolutely. Oh, yes. Okay. All right. Galatians 2. And again, keep in mind, keep in mind that this is uh, Paul, after the, after the Jerusalem conference, he's come back to Antioch, um, and, and there's been a problem that they've, they've got here. And that is that when, when Peter comes to visit Antioch, he, he sits down in one of these house churches that is a combination of Greeks and Jews having dinner together. And he sits at a meal with them. Then some of the Pharisaic Judaizing sect from Jerusalem rolls into town, makes a noise, and Peter then gets up and walks away from that table uh, and separates himself from the Greeks to eat separately. Yeah, okay, so here we go. Uh, chapter 2. Then after 14 years, I went up to Jerusalem with Barnabas. Yep, they did. Uh, set out. Uh, Titus comes with me. Um, but, now, now listen, listen to the snark. <laughs> uh, 6, verse 6. Oh, wait a minute. Uh, 4. And a discussion arose among false brethren who secretly entered in order to spy on our freedom uh, that we have in Christ Jesus, that they might enslave us. Uh, but 6. But from those who were prominent, whatever they were makes no difference to me. <laughs> who, who's he talking about? Peter, James, I mean, whoever is prominent, who they are, makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. They added nothing to me. But when they saw I was entrusted with the gospel to, uh, uncircumcised, just as Peter was uh, with the circumcised, uh, and then, uh, verse 9, and when Jacob, Joseph, Cephas, he's now changing from Peter to Cephas, Cephas 
and John perceive the grace that have been given me, they seem to be the pillars. They seemed like they were in charge. You know, just the, the, you can hear the snark, right? They seem to be, uh, they seem to be the pillars. They gave to Barnabas and to me the right hand of fellowship uh, so that we would go to the Gentiles and they would go to the circumcised. Um, and they, they requested only that we would remember the poor, which they did. They then started collecting money for the poor in Jerusalem. The very thing I was eager to do. Verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was at fault. Okay, now, I'm, you know, from our, from our modern sensibilities, to believe that we're sitting in a meeting and President Nelson is speaking... And maybe Elder Holland stands up and goes, man, are you wrong on that one? <laughs> just, just doesn't make any sense to us, right? We go, that, that's a little like, we're out, on the, we're out in the, the uh, western frontier here, and it's a little different, okay? When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was at fault. For there were some people from Jacob... Uh, came, he ate with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back, recused himself, fearing those of the, of the circumcision. And the remaining Jews were also caught up in this hypocrisy so that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. And he will carry this bit of a grudge to the point where he will not take Barnabas on his next mission. There was the John Mark thing, and then this is, you got caught up in this. All. I can't trust that you won't roll into somewhere and then refuse to eat with my Gentile converts. Even Barnabas was carried away in their, in their hypocrisy. Uh, then I said to Cephas, in front of them all, if you are a Jew and live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? <laughs> we are, you and I, we are ethnically Jews and not sinful Gentiles. Yet, Peter, we know that a person is not made righteous by the works of the law of Moses, but through the faith of Jesus Christ. And we have believed in Jesus Christ so that we might be made righteous by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. And guess what? He's totally right. <laughs> He's totally right. And should have done it in private. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say that. I was going to say that. Needed to have done it in private, didn't, did it in front, made a show. Right. Now, is that the way things operated back then in that culture? Yeah. And, and again, let me quote to you the words of uh, Anglican scholar N.T. Wright, where, where he says, and Paul. Uh, Paul wouldn't mind saying uh, boo to a goose or the swans either. <laughs> In, in, in other words, he didn't. If he was filled with zeal and the spirit, he didn't mind whether he was talking in front of King Agrippa, or whether he was talking in front of Peter, uh, or a Roman Caesar. He did not care. Wow. Now, I think we need to see. I mean, hear this. Hear Galatians for what it is, and then he goes on to explain much better. But he is on a roll, and this is Peter and his zeal, and I love him for it. 
And this is a bit rough. But if you're going to understand Paul, you need to know all sides of him. Because when we get into when we get into Romans, you're just going to get this beautiful, carefully laid out, uh, elevated speech. And Galatians is him frustrated and angry and hurting that these people that he loves uh, are being slighted. And he doesn't care who's doing it. He will speak up for them. Okay? Is that okay? Maybe okay. So that they would hear that. Yeah, yeah. So that they, they would be validated since they would put that. Okay. Yeah. It reminds me of the story when she came to see Joseph and Emma. Uh huh. Joseph's martyrdom. How a lot of the saints reacted to her. She said, I thought all saints would accept me as a, a black person, but it's not. Yeah. So I think, like you say, it was out in the open so people would know. Yeah, and I think Paul felt like he needed to do that. I mean, he felt like he was fighting a battle right at the beginning here. Okay, so I, I, I debated on this. I'll go ahead uh, so that you'll at least hear it here. Okay, here's still, still Paul on a roll. Um, because then he goes after the Galatians that started believing people coming into town trying to talk him out of what they knew. Okay, And he was still really angry at the Pharisaical, which is funny because he was a Pharisee. He's still angry at the Judaizers that are rolling into town and, and are stirring trouble up. And, and so, so then we get to verse or chapter 5, and he's saying to the Galatians, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This kind of hindering does not come from one who calls you. A little yeast causes the entire dough to rise. I am confident in the Lord that you will not think otherwise, and the one who troubles you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. Okay? So, I apologize for this, but this is Paul. But if I, brothers and sisters, still preach circumcision... Why am I still persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those that would trouble you would castrate themselves. <laughs> when was the last time you heard that quoted in general conference? <laughs> that is... Um, That is Paul. <laughs> you know what? That's funny. The, uh, the King James Version says it. I wish they would yeah, excommunicate themselves. In some cases, some of the scholars in the history have tried to say, maybe he said that they should, they should be excommunicated. They should cut themselves off from the church. A nicer way. Yes, a nicer, nicer way to say it. But the original Greek thing makes no bones about the fact it really does mean what he said it did okay um, but but again if you if you hear that the reason I wanted you to get that flavor because if you're trying to understand this great man you start to understand how much he loved his converts and the zeal with which he protected his converts and 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 his energy that anybody who would come and mess with his people 
would, would get mama bear in spades. <laughs> so you get Paul mama bear just, just rising up in his fury to protect them and to love them and to be stoned for them and to be beaten for them and to sacrifice whatever it took for them. Um, and, and it was going to take, uh, in some ways, uh, if we have a modern parallel, at times it might have been Brigham Young. Brigham Young is uh, 10 years later, um, after they arrive in the valley, uh, they are having a 10-year anniversary meeting at Parley's Canyon with the saints to celebrate coming into the valley. So this is July 24, 1857. They're having a party. Um, Porter Rockwell rides, rides into the gathering on a frothing horse. He's been riding for two days and he comes right into that gathering and he comes up to Brigham Young and he says, there's an army coming to attack the saints. They've cut off the Pony Express stuff. They've cut down the telegraph thing. They've eliminated the mail service and they are coming to destroy us. And Brigham Young stands up in front of the saints in that 10-year gathering. And he says, the army will not lay one foot in this valley. They will die at our hands before we will let them do that. They will, we are here. God will protect us. And I will not let them move us any further. We are moving no more. Prepare for war. Then they have lunch. <laughs> and Brigham Young will stand up after lunch and he will say, in, in essence, this morning I spoke like Brigham. Now I need to speak as the prophet. Go home and prepare. And let's see what happens. And we, and we are prepared to do anything to defend, but let's see what happens. And you got... Brigham, the prophet, saying, let's take a more measured look. Let's figure out how we handle this. But Brigham, the man, in the morning, is on fire. And I think Paul was certainly that way at times. That You get that rougher edge that at some moments comes out. So, All right, final comments before we kind of finish up on this. And then next week we'll kind of go into... Then Paul's going to take uh, Timothy and start on his second journey. But this is... This is where we start. So, yeah. I was, thought it was interesting about Paul because he used to do Christians beating them and killing them. Yeah, Paul. Paul was beating the Christians, right? Yeah. In other words, that's a great point. You need to recognize that whatever Paul did, he did with zeal, and he did with, uh, and so all of that energy about trying to run the Christian church out of town and beat them and have them put to death was still the same Paul that's standing there in Antioch and not, ha not about to have his converts insulted. So, yeah. Was Paul the only one defending the Greeks? She says, was Paul the only one defending the Greeks? I doubt it, but, but he's the one that wrote. And, and the, the compiler of the records, man, there's a lot of, there are a lot of records, but ultimately when they decided under Constantine to really start getting this canon of scripture, there's a lot of stuff out there. 
and which ones are we going to pull from and which ones are we not? And Paul's writings, because they were so incredibly um, powerful and informative and complete, were the, were the best things that we had out there. Again, Peter isn't going to do tons and tons of writing. He's a fisherman. Well, I'm thinking. I'm thinking I'm a right. Think of it today. And you go someplace and whatever, and the people that you were introduced to, the leaders or whatever, for whatever reason, decide to get up and just leave and not sit with you. Yeah. I mean, that's right. horrible. Yeah, she, she's saying, what if you're a new convert? And, and, and like the bishop is sitting there and then gets up and, and walks away, not because, because you're just not the same ethnic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, you could see. You could see what would raise Paul's ire. Absolutely. So, all right. Um, if anything, I hope as we're going through this, you begin to see these as real people and real battles as you're watching a church kind of being formed out of chaos and it goes through fits and starts about how it comes together and how they solve the problems that, that, that they're coming up against and what they do in the face of internal opposition as well as external persecution. Um, and I love Paul. I just do. And I leave that with you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.